All right, as you grab a seat, as you grab a seat, if you have a Bible with you, hard copy or on your phone, uh, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 8. That's where we'll be tonight. This is the fifth book in the New Testament. Uh, As we continue a teaching series, we're really talking about where our church is heading over the next eight years as we head toward the year 2030. You you know, as we begin tonight and as you're turning to Acts chapter 8, I just want to make a confession to you tonight here at church. uh, And the confession would simply go this way, um, that I am in a mood today. And I don't know if you know what that feels like. You just kind of like wake up. Here's what happened to me. I woke up. I was kind of going through my morning with the kids, got dressed, was like heading out the door for work. And my wife just looks at me and goes, what's wrong with you today? And I don't have a good answer for that. Everything's good. My life is great. Work is great. My wife is great. My kids are great. Everything's great. But I just woke up in a mood today. And I just told her, I was like, I don't know what's going on. I'm just in a bad mood. But then I got here to work and I was working on things and I thought things were going well. Everything was together and the day was kind of going the way I thought the day would go and things seemed to be good. But then one of my dear friends here just pulls me aside today and says, Brian, is everything okay? I was like, what? He goes, you just seem really mad today. And I was like, come on! Like, 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 I was just like, apparently I was not in a better spot. So like, here's what, this is so crazy how this happens. Like you wake up in a mood and then you declare, like, I'm in a mood. And, and then whatever you do throughout the day, it just seems like you can't shake it. And, and I was thinking about that deeply as I was coming into the sermon, just, like, thinking about how just, like, me even saying at, like, 8.30 this morning, yeah, I'm in a mood. Like, that idea inceptioned itself into my brain. And at no point today have I been able to shake it. Like, even when I think things are going well and I'm happy, like, that idea has actually shaped how I've lived today, even when I don't realize this. And here's what I want us to understand tonight. Like, this is what happens with every idea that sneaks into our brain. Good, bad, ugly, indifferent. Here's what Dallas Willard says. He says, there is no avoiding the fact that we live at the mercy of our ideas. And this is what's true about you. And this is what's true about me. Like, whatever you do, wherever you are, whatever you believe, even if you're in the room tonight, and you're not sure you even believe in Jesus, or you're not sure what to do with church, you're just here checking this thing out tonight. What's true about your life is that you live at the mercy of the ideas you've started to internalize. And these ideas don't even have to be religious ideas. They don't even have to be faith-type ideas. Like, let me give you a number of ideas that maybe you have started to believe and internalize, and you don't even realize you have, because everyone around you has internalized the same ideas. I'll do a little fill-in-the-blank. See if you can finish with this one with me. The grass is always greener on... Don't put all your eggs in one... Actions speak louder than don't judge a book by its. There's no use crying over spilled. (laughs) Very good. An apple a day keeps the doctor. The early bird gets the. But I always like to be reminded that the second mouse gets the cheese, right? Like, 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 but, but, but here's the deal. Like, like, like we just rattled through these little like aphorisms. Like, we just rattled through these little words of wisdom, and like, you've memorized these. You know these. I didn't have to help you with this. Maybe there's one or two, you're like, I don't don't know. But like, you knew these things. And here's what's happened in your life and in mine. Throughout the course of our life, we have been taught things, and these ideas actually become internalized to us. And it's not just vague ideas, it's like little phrases and sentences. And we start to internalize these little phrases and sentences. So when I say, don't judge a book by its cover, that's actually something you've internalized. Or or like the early bird gets the worm, you've actually internalized what it means to get up early or get there first or do something right. And whatever the case may be, 
I just want to point out that little phrases we learn shape how we live. Little phrases that somewhere along the way you learned. Little phrases that are just completely made up, like don't put all your eggs in one basket. Like where'd that even come from? But somewhere along the way, almost all of us learn that. And little phrases like that shape the way we live. I love the way John Piper says it. He says it this way. He says, books don't change people. Paragraphs do. Sometimes even sentences. And tonight, what I'd like to do as we continue through this vision series, shaping and thinking about who our church is and who God has called us to be, I want to give you six phrases, six sentences, six little phrases that I believe if you will memorize and internalize and live out will actually shape the way you live and love like Jesus. It will shape your future and it will shape your faith. There are six phrases I want to introduce to you, and some of them might seem as arbitrary as some of the ones we just read. And yet I believe that these little phrases, these little sentences, will shape and mold the future of your life. So let me show you these six sentences here. You can call them our six core behaviors, our six core values, the six things we want to be true for everyone here. The first one is that it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The second one is that God's people delight in God's word. The third is that life change happens in a relationship. The fourth is that found people find people. The fifth is that saved people serve people. And the final one up here is that grateful people are giving people. And these six phrases, these six sentences, are what we're going to be talking about this week and next. This week I'm going to cover three of these, and next week we're going to cover the next three. And I want you to see how if you would internalize and memorize and start to believe and live by these six sentences, it will shape your future, it will shape your faith, and it will shape your experience of life on this planet as you walk with Jesus. So again, we're going to be in Acts chapter 8. For those of you who have the Bible open, for those of you following along, it'll be on the screen as well. It says this in Acts chapter 8 and verse 26. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south on the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now here's the context. Again, the early church is growing and wonderful things are happening. And there's a man named Philip. And he's got this fruitful and beautiful ministry that's happening in Jerusalem where God's doing mighty things through him. He's leading people to Jesus. God is using this man, Philip, in amazing ways in the city of Jerusalem. But then I want to point out what happens here in this text. It says that God's doing amazing things all the way through chapter 8. And then verse 26, an angel of the Lord, like God speaks to him and says this, go south on the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza like in other words, what happens here is God tells him, you're supposed to start walking down this road. Now you'll notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say go down to Gaza. It says go to the road, the desert road, that eventually ends in Gaza. In other words, what God is telling him to do is not to go to a destination, but to take the first step down the road. And I think this is a significant thing for us as we think about what it means to be men and women of faith. So often what we want, especially when we are young, when, when life is just starting out, when we're building things, is we want to know what the destination looks like. We want to know what God is leading us in toward. But I want you to know the consistent story of faith throughout the scriptures is God calling people to take steps. God calling people to take steps even when they don't know what the end is. That walking by faith means taking the first step without knowing the final destination. And if you're a follower of Jesus... What I want for you is I want you to be able to say yes to Jesus, even if you don't know where that eventually leads. I want you to be a person who says yes to the call of God on your life, even if you're not sure what that means in the next decade or five decades, what that means for your future spouse or children or career. 
if God is calling you towards something, to walk by faith is to say yes, even though you don't know where it leads. See, Philip is called to go south on the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And then verse 27, it simply says these words. It says, so we started out. So we started out. And I love the model of faith that Philip is for us here. Philip doesn't say, excuse me, um, angel of the Lord, I've got some questions for God. He doesn't ask all the questions. He doesn't look into it. He doesn't think about it and journal about it a little bit. He doesn't buy a book on the subject of the desert road that goes down to Gaza or listen to the latest podcast. He just does it. God tells him to do something. And rather than questioning it, rather than thinking about it, rather than mulling it over, rather than texting all his friends what they think, he just does exactly what God tells him to do. And I want you to understand that this is how growing in faith works. This is what it means for us to grow in faith. This is what spiritual growth looks like. Uh, like tonight, I want to talk to you about this two-step formula for spiritual growth. It's super sophisticated and super interesting. Two-step formula. Here's the formula. Number one, you listen to God. Number two, you do what he says. <laughs> Profound, right? But that's it. Like that's exactly what it is. This is how you grow spiritually. You listen to God and you do what he says. And then you listen to God again and you do what he says again. How do you listen to God? You listen to him through his word. Like you read the scriptures. You listen to him through prayer. Like you listen for his voice whispering to your heart and you listen through his people. And like the joy, the joy and the, the thing we get to do with God is God speaks and we listen. But then I want you to understand that spiritual growth doesn't just happen when we listen. It happens when we listen to God and we do what he said. And here's the problem. Almost no one actually wants to live this way. Like almost no one actually wants to listen to God and do what he says because we prefer something else. We prefer something called insight. And here's why we do. Because insight is always easier than obedience. Insight is always easier than obedience. Like, do you know how easy it is to come to a church service and be like, that sermon tonight just ruined me. It wrecked me, destroyed, eviscerated, I'm dead. Like to walk out and just be like, that sermon was for me tonight. Oh, that was so insightful. But then not actually go do anything about it. Like, do you know how easy it is to read a book and be like, oh man, that book just had some really good insights. I have never heard anyone put it that way ever. And you're like handing the book around, but you don't actually do what the author of the book says to do. Or you see something on social media and it's so good, it's so amazing that you share it on your story and put a little fire emoji and you're like, this is the thing. Are you actually gonna do it? No, because why? Insight is always easier than obedience. It's always easier to have some insight. And listen, insight is good and it is beautiful and it is wonderful to have some insight on what God is teaching you and what God is telling you and why you are the way you are. But here's what I need you to know tonight. The insight doesn't cause spiritual growth. Obedience does. Obedience. So the question for us when we gather on a Thursday night here is not just to assess and evaluate and think about the church service. Your job is to ask this question, okay, how can I walk in obedience to what was just taught? How can I actually take what I heard tonight, take what God is speaking to me, and put it into practice Oswald Chambers says this, he says, the golden rule to follow to obtain spiritual understanding is not one of intellectual pursuit, but one of obedience. If a person wishes scientific knowledge, then intellectual curiosity must be his guide. But if he desires knowledge and insight into the teachings of Jesus Christ, he can only obtain that through obedience. If you want to understand God, if you want to grow to be more like Jesus, if you want to grow spiritually and thrive in the way that God has called you toward, it will not do for you to just get insight on things. What you'll eventually have to do is take steps of obedience. You'll have to take that insight 
and put it into practice. Philip is told by the angel of the Lord, go down this road to Gaza, the desert road. Start walking on the desert road. And Philip doesn't ask questions. Philip doesn't ponder it. Philip doesn't tweet about it. Philip just does what God tells him to do. And here's my question for us every time we gather. What is the next step of obedience? What next step of obedience is God calling me to take today? That is the question we should ask every time we gather. Not did we like the songs tonight or did we like the sermon or who did we see? There should be something in us as followers of Jesus that said, what is the Holy Spirit of God? What is God calling me to do? What is my next step? As we talk about these six sentences, these six phrases, these six ideas that I want you to internalize and memorize and know for your life, the point isn't just that you would get new ways of saying old things. The point is that you would internalize these sentences, that these phrases would actually shape how you live. In verse 27, Philip's going down the road. It says he started off, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all of the treasuries of Kandaki, which means the queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone down to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home, he was sitting on a chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. Now, now here's this fascinating moment. He's going down the road, and he meets this man that's going to be referred to as the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, Like, we don't get this guy's name. All we know is that he is from Ethiopia. He is part of the royal court. He's a big deal. And for whatever reason, he's gone up to Jerusalem to worship. So he's gone to Jerusalem. He's gone to the temple of the Lord. He's had an experience of worship. And now he's heading back home. It says the man had gone to Jerusalem. He's heading home. He's sitting in his chariot. And what is he doing in his chariot? He is reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. And I find this fascinating Like he has just gone to his church service and on his way home, it's like he couldn't get enough of God and his word and his presence. And so he's continuing to read the book of Isaiah. He couldn't get enough of it. So he's reading it even on his way home. It was like back when I was in college, I remember visiting a buddy of mine uh, and we got together at this local taco shop near his house. And I don't know, I can't even remember where the taco shop was or for the life of me, find it on a map. But here's what I know. In the new creation in heaven, this taco shop will be there. It was that good. It was outstanding. I was eating the tacos, ignoring my friend entirely. It was so good. And then after the taco shop, we went back to his house and we were hanging out for a little bit, starting to get late at night. And it was like, all right, it's time for me to drive back home. So I start driving back home and the road takes me past the taco shop. Now it is late at night and I'm not hungry, but I see an open side. So you know what I did? I drove back into the taco shop because I couldn't get enough of it. It was just like, I need more tacos. I'm not hungry. I'm tired. I need to get home. But none of that matters right now. All I want is more of these tacos. And that is what this man here, this Ethiopian eunuch is showing us. What it's like to have this hunger, this deep hunger for the word of God. Like he's just gone to church. And yet on his way home from church, he's like, I gotta have more of the word of God in me. I gotta have more. I can't get enough of it. I just want more and more and more. The psalmist in Psalm 119 says it this way. He says, I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. Man, I'll tell you, like, this is how I want to approach the Bible. Like, I don't want to say things to myself like, I really should read the Bible more. I know I'm supposed to read the Bible. I want to treat the Bible. I want to see the Bible like I saw those tacos. Like, I don't care if I'm tired. I don't care if I'm exhausted. I don't care if I think I need it or not. I just want the word of God. I want to know God's word. I want it more than anything else. I pant for it. I'm thirsty for it. I'm hungry for it. You see, this man is modeling for us what we believe is one of these core behaviors, these core values. And that's simply this statement that we believe God's people delight in God's word. 
And here's what we as a leadership see when we look forward into 2030 and see our church. We see a church that is filled with disciples who both know and love the word of God. A number of weeks ago in here, we were teaching through what it means to elevate our love for God's word. That we're not just interested in Bible knowledge for knowledge's sake. And we're not just interested in like this kind of affection for the word of God. But we want to fuse those together in a love we have. Where we elevate this love and this affection and this knowledge all together of God's word where we don't just look to the Bible as a rule book or an encyclopedia about God, but rather we are the type of people who delight in God's word, who we can't get enough of it. Like all we want is God's word and we'll do anything to get it. Now you might ask the question, all right, like if we talked about all the Bible stuff weeks ago, why talk about it again tonight? Like you guys seem really intent on getting people to read the Bible more. And my answer to that is we absolutely do. And here's why. Because Bible reading is not just one of the things you can do as you listen to God and do what he says. Remember, listen to God, do what he says. That's the entire formula. It is the basis of the first one. And it is what we would call, uh, social researchers call it a keystone habit. So I want to talk to you about keystone habits tonight. Here's how Charles Duhigg in his book, Power of Habit, describes keystone habits. Keystone habits are small changes or habits that people introduce into the routine that unintentionally carry over into other aspects of their life. So, so Duhigg will talk about people who make their bed first thing in the morning. Raise your hand if you make your bed first thing in the morning. Okay, a bunch of you. Here's what's true of most of you who make your bed first thing in the morning. Like making your bed first thing in the morning, you end up being more organized and neat and tidy through the rest of the day because you did that one thing. For some people, it's making a budget. I won't even ask who makes a budget here, but you make a budget and, and then your money is more organized the rest of the month. It's like that one habit actually cascades into other decisions. For some people on Sunday night or Monday morning, they'll do like a review of their calendar and they'll really work through their week and that actually allows them to manage their time well throughout the week. For for me, it's like the mornings I get up early before the kids are up, before I go into work and I work out and and I like get the exercise in. I always end up eating healthier that day. I always end up sitting up straighter. I treat my body better those days. Why? That little keystone habit spills out into everything else in my life. A keystone habit is one little thing that knocks over all the other dominoes in life. And here's what we believe. The Bible reading is a keystone habit for followers of Jesus. That if you read your Bible, everything else flows out of that. You want to have a rocking prayer life? Know the word of God and listen to what he has to say. You want to walk in service and using your spiritual gifts? Listen to God so you can do what he said. If you want to be someone who walks in peace in the troubles of this world, listen to what God has to say and walk in obedience to him. Bible reading is a keystone habit, meaning everything else that we want to see flow out of your life from service to generosity to kindness to peace, everything else that happens in the life of a believer happens because we read the scriptures, we listen to God, and we do what he says. And then really, this is not just like a sociological observation. This is a deeply biblical and theological observation. Because Bible reading is really just, just the same thing as listening to what God has to say. And here's what I want you to know is true in the Bible, and it's true about your life as well, that every great move of God in the Bible begins with him speaking. Like if you look back to Genesis chapter 1 and you know how the creation story goes, it said God spoke and said, let there be light. And all of creation comes into account. And then we see all throughout the Old Testament, there's, there's story after story after story from Elijah to Noah to Abraham to Moses, all these people. And it begins with this, the word of the Lord came to this individual. God speaks and we respond. 
The story of Jesus, we're told in John chapter 1, begins with the word of God becoming flesh. God speaks and everything comes into motion. The story of Paul, the story of this person who is this missionary who wrote so much in the New Testament, started with God speaking to Paul, speaking to Saul, saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Every good thing that happens in the Bible, every great move of God happens with God speaking first. So what do we want to be? We want to be a people who listen to God and do what he says. And in order to do that, we are going to have to be a people who delight in God's word. It goes on this way in verse 29. It says, the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran ahead to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I? He asked, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. So so here's what happens. This man's going back from Jerusalem. He's reading Isaiah the prophet out loud, but he's not really clear on what this prophecy is actually about. He's confused on what the prophecy is. He's not sure what's going on here in Isaiah. And then Philip comes up and says, can I sit with you? Can I explain it? He's invited into the chariot. And what's going to happen for this man? I'm sorry to spoil the ending now, but this man is going to come to faith in Jesus Christ and be baptized. His whole life, indeed, his whole eternity is going to be changed. And it is changed, not because he was just reading the word of God alone and this worked. He actually, his entire life is changed because Philip steps into a relationship with him. Because one individual stepped into a relationship with him and explained it to him. And see, here's what we believe. We believe that life change, life change happens in relationship Like as important as it is for you to listen to God and to do what he says, this doesn't work in full. This doesn't work in power until you are in relationship with other believers. And our leadership sees this when we look toward 2030. We see a church that is filled with disciples who are relentless in their pursuit of God-honoring, life-changing relationships with other believers. This is what we see if God is going to accomplish all that he's going to do through your life. You are going to need to be in relationship with other Christians. You can't do this thing on your own. You can't do this thing on your own strength and in your own power. And why do we believe that's true? Because the consistent witness throughout the scriptures is this, that God uses his people to accomplish his purposes. God uses his people to accomplish his purposes. And that is true in this world, but I need you to hear this tonight. God uses his people to accomplish his purposes in your life. God will not accomplish the purposes he has in your life without his people. And where do I get that from? This verse, actually. Verse 29, it began this way. If you read in the scriptures, the story we just read, it says, the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Now you got to imagine this Ethiopian eunuch. He's just kind of going along the way. He's reading the scriptures. He doesn't know what's going. And then suddenly this guy, Philip, goes up. And so the guy might think, well, why didn't God just come down and tell me what this verse was all about? Why didn't God just step in miraculously and tell me what this verse in Isaiah was all about? But what the Ethiopian eunuch doesn't know is that this is exactly what God did. Here's what was happening. He was going along the way. God said, I want to step in and change this Ethiopian eunuch's life. So what does he do? It says the spirit has a word for Philip. Like the spirit steps in with Philip and tells him what to do, tells him to step in in this situation. And so this isn't God going, hands off, I'll go with plan B, people. I want you to know that it's not plan A is God speaks from heaven and plan B is he uses his people. I want you to know plan A is God uses his people. He speaks through his people. He moves through his people. And that's why life change happens in relationship. Like I want you to know any moment that God has worked in your life, he has done so through people. He's done so through relationship. 
Like, let me put it this way. I want you to know if you are depressed tonight, that God heals us from depression in relationship. Like there is no healing from depression outside of relationships that God ordains and puts into your life. I want you to know that God frees us from addiction in relationship. Like if you're stuck in something right now, if it's got its claws in you, there is no freedom outside of the people God wants to bring into your life. God gives us purpose and clarity in relationship. Like if you're just not sure where your life is going or what God's called you to do with your gifts and with your talents and with your life, that only happens through relationships. God gives us relief from exhaustion in relationship. Like if you're just kind of burning the candle at both ends, you're exhausted, you're overwhelmed. I want you to know that you do not find relief from that on your own. You find it through people who are willing to walk with you. God gives us help for our marriage in relationships. For those of you who are married and for those of you online or for those of you who will be married someday, I just want you to know um, marriage isn't always easy. Like we just need to be honest enough to say marriage is a good, beautiful gift and at times very hard. And so God steps in through people and gives us help with our marriages. God gives us strength for parenting in relationship. And finally, God gives us wisdom for our finances in relationship. Listen, relationships, people, God's people aren't some kind of plan B. It's not like God didn't show up in power, so he sent someone to talk to you. It's that God showed up in power and sent someone to talk to you. That's exactly how God works. It's exactly how God moves. For for me, um, almost 10 years ago, um, I got married uh, in March of 2013, and then right after I was married, I stepped into a small group that I've been part of ever since, so nine years, almost 10 years this next summer, and that group has been absolutely magnificent in me learning to walk with Jesus. There are men and women in there who are much older, men and women who are younger. I've just learned from them. I've been shaped by them. I've been molded by them, and here's what I want you to know. Like, I've gone to that group every single Wednesday night for almost 10 years, and there was never a moment where I'm like, fire fell from heaven, and everything changed, and it was crazy. That's never happened. I've never had a moment where I'm like, I can't even explain or put this into words. But I promise you, the God of the universe has shaped me through that group. Like the God of the universe has used his people in that small group to shape me and mold me and make me more like his son, Jesus. That group isn't God's plan B, it's plan A, because life change happens in relationship. So here's what I want to point out to someone tonight, that when we're stuck, we often ask, what do I need to do? When the first question should be, who do I need to talk to? Who do I need to be in relationship with? If you're stuck somewhere in life, if you're not sure what to do, if you're overwhelmed, if you're addicted, if you're depressed, if you're anxious, if you need help in some way, your impulse is to say, what do I do? What book can I read? What resource can I get? When the right question, the first question is always, who do I need to talk to? What relationship do I need to be in? It goes on this way in verse 32. It says, the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading said this, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before his shearer is silent, he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Verse 34, the eunuch asked Philip, please tell me, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with the very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. So here's what Philip understands. Philip understands that whether he's coming from the book of Isaiah or the book of Matthew or the book of Genesis or or, or the book of Deuteronomy, it does not matter where that all of the scriptures are eventually going to lead us to Jesus. What we need to understand about the Bible is the Bible is the story of Jesus. All the way through Old and New Testament, it is pointing to this Messiah, this Son of God, who God uses to accomplish his purposes and rescue his people in this world. See, what Philip understands is something all of us need to understand. It's our third and final sentence, phrase, value, and behavior tonight. 
And that's simply this, that we believe it's all about Jesus. I need you to know this, especially if you're new or newer here. I want you to know at this church, it's all about Jesus. When we look to 2030, we see a church filled with disciples who are committed to making much of Jesus. This phrase, make much of Jesus, is as old as this church is. For 45 years, we've been talking as a church about making much of Jesus Christ, making a big deal of Jesus, talking about him and praying to him and celebrating him and worshiping him and considering him and memorizing what he has to say. We believe here it's all about Jesus. Now, uh, of the six sentences, um, this might, might be the one that you just kind of look at and roll your eyes and go like, duh, of course it's all about Jesus. Who else would it be about, Captain Crunch? Like, of course it's all about Jesus at church. But here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that the great challenge in every generation of the church is to keep the main thing the main thing. Like this is the great challenge in every generation of the church is to keep it about Jesus. And as much as this pains me to say, the history of the Christian church is not the history of us keeping it all about Jesus. It is the history of us falling into power or violence or wealth or something other than making much of Jesus Christ. If you look through church history, you will not find a history of people just constantly celebrating and rejoicing in the goodness of Jesus Christ. And I want us to understand that the main thing for our church and the main thing for your life is to keep the main thing the main thing. Like the main thing you will do in life is keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. I want us to understand that making much of Jesus, that making it all about Jesus is not a meaningless phrase. It means a number of things are true for our church and a number of things are true for your life. First, it means this, if this church is all about Jesus, that it's not all about keeping things the way they've all, that we've always done it. Like I want us to understand that if it's all about Jesus and all about reaching people for Jesus and telling people about Jesus, then things may change over the years. We may change the room we're meeting in or change the time we're meeting. We may change things. There's no changes or plans coming down the road. I want you to know that. But I want you to know that if we're serious about Jesus above all things, we just can't hold on to the things of the past. We can't hold on to how church has always been done. We need to step forward into a bold and new future that God has for us, holding on to Jesus and standing upon his word and being faithful to the gospel, but stepping into a new season. If you're interested in a church that never changes, that never does anything different, that stays the same forever, you will eventually come to hate and despise this church because we will change whatever it takes to reach people who are far from God, because for us, it's all about Jesus. Listen, number two, if this church is all about Jesus, there may be some things here that I don't prefer. Like, here's what I want you to know. I'm the teaching pastor here at this church. I'm one of the executive leaders at this church. I have influence. I have the ability to change things. And I need you to know that I don't like everything we do here at this church. And I'm going to guess the same is true for you. Sometimes we sing a song and I'm like, I don't really like this song. Sometimes we do an event, and I'm like, I don't really get this event. Sometimes we do a thing, and I'm like, I don't, that's not really my favorite. Sometimes we put up a graphic, and I'm like, eh, that's not my taste. There are all kinds of things around here that aren't my taste, but here's a great reminder for me, and here's a great reminder for you. I want you to know that this is Calvary Community Church, not Brian Howard, Inc. And this is Calvary Community Church, not whatever your name is, Inc. And so if you are looking for a place that lines up with every single one of your preferences, I urge you to leave our church now because it never will. I've been on staff 12 years and there's still things. I'm like, why in the world do we do that? But that's what God has called us toward. If the center for us is Jesus and not our preferences, we should be able to be like, yeah, that's not my favorite song and just move on. We should be able to say, yeah, that's not my favorite way of saying that and move on. And of course, if there's doctrinal issues or moral issues, or if there's something bad or terrible, that's a different subject altogether. 
But so many people bail on churches, not because of those issues, but because they just kind of didn't like some things around the edges. And I want you to be a person who's all about Jesus, not all about your preferences. Next one is this. Um, if this church is all about Jesus, then it is not all about my comfort and enjoyment. Um, one of the tempting things for pastors when we stand in the lobby on Sunday morning or when I stand out there and people walk into the doors, I, I always welcome them to church. And then from time to time, I catch myself saying something like, hey, I hope you enjoy the service. And from time to time, it's like the spirit of God comes back to me and is like, hey, what if I didn't actually bring them in here to enjoy the service tonight? Well, what if I didn't bring them in here to be enjoying and comfortable? What if I actually brought them in here to convict them of their sin? What if I actually brought them in there to convict of their unrighteousness or of their lack of faith? What if I actually had something I wanted for them tonight and enjoyment wasn't the plan, it was actually spiritual growth? And what I want us to know is that you should enjoy being around here, okay? If you hate being around here, different issue. And there at times, okay, we want to try to make it comfortable. We'd like, we'd like it not to be 150 degrees in here or 20 degrees, all right? So I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about like what we do here should not just be affirming what you already believe and know. There should be something about this church that stirs you because it's all about Jesus. It's not about your comfort. It is not about your enjoyment. Next one is this. If this church is all about Jesus, then my politics always come second. They always do. I want you to know that Calvary has continued to be and will always be a place that says Jesus is our guy, everyone else comes second. And we will be a people who keep the main thing, the main thing. It's election season. You would not believe the number of people, the pressure that comes in for us to stand up and endorse and talk about politics as if that's what's gonna save people. And I want you to know that I voted. I want you to know that I vote every election. I care about who runs the government. I care about all of this. If you have lawn signs in your lawn, awesome. If you advocate on social media, awesome. Do it with grace and with kindness. If you're into that, do that. I want all of you to vote. I want all of you to be informed. I want all of you to care. I just want you to know from this stage, it's Jesus, period. That's who we are. From this stage, it is exalting the resurrected son of God. And it's not to say we don't care about politics. It's just that it always comes second. And the great tragedy for so many in our world is that they have taken their political party and elevated it to number one, and then they put Jesus in service of it. And I want you to know Jesus is in service to no politician. He's in service to no king, no Lord, no entity. Jesus is king of kings and Lord of lords, and all of them will one day bow to him. That's what's gonna happen. So I want you to know if it's all about Jesus, my politics come second. It's not that I won't vote. It's not that I don't care. It's just it's Jesus above all of that. Next one is this, that if the church is all about Jesus, I'm going to have to read the Gospels. Like that sounds really simple, but it's like, we're all about Jesus. Do you ever read the four stories about his life? Well, no, okay? It's like, you're all about it, but you don't even know about him. And what I want to encourage and call you toward is to read the Gospels, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. There's four stories of Jesus' life in the Bible. And the whole Bible is about him. But if you ignore the four stories about Jesus' life, the four tales about who he is and how he lived and why he was here, you're missing out. And you can't live in love like Jesus if you don't know what it's actually like. And so what do we do? I'm going to read the Gospels. If it's all about Jesus, I'm going to read the Gospels. And finally, if it's all about Jesus, then listen, it's not all about me. It's just not. And I want you to know the most miserable people in your life and in your world are the people who make it all about them. Their whole life revolves around them. They wake up in the morning thinking about them, considering them, praying for them, caring for them, financially investing in them. The people who are obsessed with themselves never find happiness. They're only miserable. 
I can want you to know this is true. If it's all about Jesus, then it's not about me. My name, my fame, my comfort, it's not all about me. And so church becomes something that's not just about me. It's about God. It's about others. It's about his purposes in this world. If church isn't all about me, if it's all about Jesus, maybe I should bring someone with me to church. Maybe I should serve in a ministry of this church. Maybe I should invest in this church. If it's not all about what I get and who I am and what I want, then maybe it's time for me to step outside of myself, even at church. See, here's what Jesus says in the Gospels. He says, if anyone wants to be my disciple, like if anyone here wants to follow Jesus, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. For what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can everyone give in exchange for their soul? Here's what Jesus wants you to know. If you want to find the life that he's called you toward, the purpose and the joy and the peace he has for you, you've got to get outside yourself and make your life all about Jesus. Here's how the story closes in verse 36. It says, and they traveled along the road and they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here's water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized them. So here's what happens. This eunuch is asking about Jesus and Philip tells him about Jesus and tells him the good news of Jesus. And tonight I'm gonna tell some of you about the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for you. And I'm gonna invite you tonight, some of you tonight in this space to respond to that good news of Jesus, to respond to what God has done through you through his son, Jesus. But this is what the eunuch does. He hears the message, he responds. And then immediately, what does he do? He's like, there's the water right there. Little stream, let's go do it right now. Let's jump in that river. Why? Immediately he moves to baptism because that's the symbol. That's the sign that we've come to faith in Christ. And I want to invite you, if you have not been baptized, I want to invite you to be baptized with the same urgency this eunuch has. He comes to Christ and he wants to be baptized. And if you have come to Christ but have not been baptized, dunked in the waters as a symbol that you are dead to your sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ, if you have not gone through baptism, I want to encourage you to do that. And you have an opportunity in just a couple weeks. November 5th and 6th, we'll be doing baptisms here in our main services here at Calvary. I want to invite you to sign up. You go on the Calvary website, you sign up. If you can't figure out how to do that, talk to me, talk to Brian, talk to Sarah, talk to anyone here, and we will figure out how to get you baptized as a symbol that you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The eunuch comes to Christ and immediately he gets baptized. But before we even get to baptism, what we need to understand is what God has done on our behalf. And that is laid out in verse 32 of the text we just read. So as you go back to verse 32, remember he's reading a passage of scripture from Isaiah. It says this, this is the passage that the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And again, he says, who is this about? Is this about the prophet Isaiah or is this about someone else? And Philip explains patiently to him that it's about someone else, that someone is named Jesus. Jesus is the one who is sent into this world. He is like a sheep led to the slaughter. And what's this a reference to? This is a reference to the cross of Jesus. See, I want you to know this if you're not a Christian. We as Christians believe that the centerpiece of our faith is Jesus being murdered and crucified on a Roman cross. That right at the center of our faith is a bloody, bruised man who is hanging on a Roman cross. And it is not just because we feel sorry for him. He went willingly to the cross because this is the centerpiece of the Christian gospel. That Jesus steps onto the cross and in the cross, this is what happens. On the cross, Jesus paid a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. This is the centerpiece of the Christian gospel, that we owed a debt we could not pay, a sin debt toward God. We had rebelled against God, walked away from God, said, forget you, God, I'm going my own direction. And we had accrued a debt we never could have paid. 
And yet Jesus on the cross pays for that debt. Jesus didn't know it. He was the perfect and sinless one. And yet through Jesus, God has that debt paid through inflicting the punishment and the condemnation that was due to us on Jesus Christ. So that in the end, when Jesus cries out to Telestai, it is finished on the cross. He is crying out that the debt is paid in full. It was like a number of years ago, um, I went to seminary. And when I went to seminary, uh, I, I had to take out student loans for the first time in my life. Now, maybe some of you had to do that for undergraduate. My parents were so generous and paid me through. But when I got to grad school, it was on my own. And so as I went to seminary, I took out loans for the first time in my life and really tried to live frugal and try to save up and pay it off. And it was a journey of five, six, seven years. But, but then here's what happens at one point. I'm paying off the loans and then eventually I pay it all down to zero. And this letter gets sent to my house. And, and here's what the letter says. The letter, um, we'll, we'll put it up on the screen here, um, says it's a paid in full notification. And you'll see in the yellow box there, it says, please be advised that the loans listed below is considered paid in full. And if that company ever comes to me and says, you actually owe me some money, I'll hold up that piece of paper and say, no, 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 no. You told me it was paid in full. If anyone comes after me and says, you are in debt to the federal government for your loans, I will point to this paper and say, no, 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 I am paid in full. And my metaphor breaks down because I actually diligently and slowly and painfully paid off that process. But here's what I want you to know. It's true for all of us. When it comes to our debt before God, you didn't pay anything. The gospel is the good news that Jesus paid it all. Your debt is paid in full and you have done nothing to earn it. It is a gift. This is the gift of God in Jesus Christ that your sin before a holy God is paid in full and that Jesus Christ died on the cross, went into the grave, rose from the dead for your salvation so that you would never have to pay off your debt before God, but rather receive his salvation as a gift. This is the good news of Jesus. Right at the center of the gospel is what this Ethiopian eunuch is reading about that Jesus goes like a lamb to the slaughter to pay a debt that we could have never paid. He'd never owed it. And yet this is the good news of Jesus, that because of the finished work of Jesus, our debt is forgiven. Colossians chapter two says this, it says, he forgave all our sins, having canceled the charge of legal indebtedness, which stood against us and, con and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And all you need to do is receive that forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins has been offered. It's like this letter has been extended. And what you do is receive it by faith. You receive it with joy. You call on the name of the Lord. And that's exactly what I want to invite some of you to do tonight. Uh, our band is going to make their way up. But right now, I just believe and, and really pray that someone in this room would come to respond to that good news of Jesus tonight. That you would know that there is a God who sees you and loves you. He created you. And despite everything you've ever done to walk away from him, there is a God who says, I love you enough to send my son Jesus to die for you. Your debt need not be held against you anymore. I have forgiven it fully in Jesus. Here is the gift of salvation. Now receive it from me. And what the scriptures say is that we receive that by calling on the name of the Lord, crying out to God that he would rescue and save us, forgive us of our debt and make us his child forevermore. So I want to invite you all across this room to close your eyes. Would you please and bow your head? And this is an opportunity for us to, to pray before the Lord, our God. Um, we close our eyes and we bow our heads simply because of this, that there will come a day, the scriptures say, where everyone dies and we stand before God in judgment. And on that day, the person to your left or to your right will not be able to speak for you. Your mom or your dad or your pastor when you were a child will not be able to speak to, for you. You will speak for what you did with Jesus Christ and whether you received the forgiveness he offers or not. And so I invite you all over this room. If tonight's the night, you say, you know what? I've been far from God. I've not trusted him. I've not been forgiven of my sins. I've not experienced this debt being paid. 
I want to invite you tonight to call on the name of the Lord. And I'm just going to pray a prayer. There's nothing special about this prayer other than just giving you the words to cry out to Jesus. Would you pray, God, I know you created me. And God, I confess that I've turned from you. Tonight, I ask you, Lord, to forgive me of my sins, to make me your child, and to give me a home with you forevermore. God, I don't know all the answers. I just believe that through Jesus, my debt is paid. I give all I know of me to all I know of you. And God, I ask that tonight you would rescue and save my soul. And if tonight you prayed that for the first time, if tonight you're calling on the name of Jesus for the first time, you're saying, listen, I've been far from God, but tonight I wanna receive his forgiveness. On three, would you just be bold enough to open your eyes and look straight at me? If you prayed that prayer with me tonight on three, would you just look at me one, two, three? All over this room, there's no shame. There's just forgiveness. There's just a God who reaches down and says, you're forgiven, you're free, not because of anything you've done, but because of who he is. And this is the beautiful thing about our God. Like there's no shame here. All of us are sinners. I'm a sinner. So is everyone else here. And yet God rescues and redeems us by his son, Jesus. So to those of you looking at me right now, I just want to celebrate what God's doing in your life. I don't want to embarrass anyone in this room. I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable. I just want you to know you're celebrated and you're loved. And that there are people all over this room, some of whom a week ago or 10 weeks ago or 10 years ago stood in the exact space you are. And that those people would love to celebrate with you. And so you've done something true, but I'm, I'm gonna ask you tonight if you're willing to do something brave. And that would be, um, in just a moment, I'll count again. And if you would be willing to stand to your feet and declare that tonight, just by standing, you've been saved and rescued and forgiven by Jesus. I know there are people all over this room who would love to celebrate and know that God's at work in your life. And so if you don't stand, there's no judgment. I'm not mad. I just wanna give you an opportunity to stand and say, tonight's the night that I am forgiven by my God. So if tonight's the night you're receiving Jesus on three, would you stand with me? to declare that God has forgiven you. One, two, three. All over this room. All over this room. Let's celebrate what God's doing all over this room. Praise the Lord. To, to those of you who are standing, I want you to know that God loves you. He forgives you. He sees you and he calls you his child. He welcomes you into his family and says, I have loved you from the day you were born, from the day you were conceived in your mother's womb. I knew you and I saw you and I wanted you. The good news of Jesus is that he is on the move in this place in your life and he receives you and he says, welcome home. So can the rest of us stand with those who are welcomed home tonight? Would you pray with me as we close with one final song, praying God in heaven, we love you. God, we see you, we praise you, we worship you, that you are a God who saves and rescues through your son, Jesus. God, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. God, as we sing his name right now, would your spirit meet us in power? Would we be a people who are always about Jesus, all about Jesus? And it's in his name we pray. And all God's people said,